There was a moment this week where Christy and I actually visited our neighbors right next to us, where we learned that the husband's sister and her husband had lost everything in the tornado. It happened on Monday night and Tuesday morning. They live out from Cookville, Tennessee, and were awakened uh, watching their roof lift off their house. Uh, the wife holding their baby had just placed it down as a wall fell on top of her. She had 10 stitches in her head, but praise be to God, that was the only injury uh, in their family. And, you know, there's moments like that as you have those conversations where um, perspective takes shape, doesn't it? And hopefully that happened for some of you this week, just perspective, uh, remembering the things that are important, what really matters uh, in life. Uh, we were there, the whole neighborhood was coming together to help support and bringing donations and talking to them there in their foyer, asking things that we can do to help. And it was also, of course, the day that we learned that the very first uh, diagnosis of coronavirus had happened in Williamson County. And so we we're sitting there talking to Trey, my neighbor in the, in the foyer, and we're just like, any way we can help whatsoever. And then he goes to shake my hand, and I had a moment of going... Okay, you know, and there's, there's that thing that happened, you know, inside of my heart, right? We want to do anything to help. Don't touch me. <laughs> we want to get close enough to do anything we can to help. Don't, don't, don't touch me, right? That sort of service and self-protection, just right there together. Now, there's wisdom and there's caution in, in that as well. It wasn't um, just strictly a, a selfish instinct or motive in the moment. But what it, what it sort of appeared to me, especially in reflecting upon the text we're about to read and what registered with me, is how often both of those two impulses are side by side in our lives, especially when we go through crisis or we go through, through tragedy. Um, an impulse to self-protect and uh, kind of turn a blind eye or put a little hedge around us to not get involved too much of the mess, just be thankful we're not in it. And then another impulse that says, I really, sh I really want to go serve, I want to help out, I want to I do something. And those, that little war that goes on in our minds and our hearts between what we may be experiencing as the tug of the Lord towards the work of service and care for neighbors in need and the tug of the flesh that says, yeah, but you got a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> How does one navigate such waters internally in the midst of day-to-day -day dilemmas? Uh, right along those lines, much less dis natural disasters that happen uh, in your own community. I want to raise that question for you. How do we navigate that? How do we make those kinds of decisions? And how does the text of Scripture give to us both truth and pattern, a model 
from which to make such decisions and help us think about it. And I think actually the Apostle Paul does so very clearly by giving to us a beautiful demonstration and portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ in this text. And we're going to give attention uh, to that this morning. And ask the Lord, Lord, give give us your heart for the people within our sphere of influence and in the context to which you've placed us. Give us your heart to serve in the way that we have been served so faithfully by you. Lord, give us that heart. I would ask you to pray for that as we enter into the word of God. Lord, we just simply want your heart. We want, we want what you would want out of the whole of our lives, patterned after the way that you've served us so faithfully. What would be the appropriate response of our heart in life? In light of that, pray, pray with that spirit um, with me, even as we look at the text and with that, that aim that the Lord might be pleased both individually and corporately to do a fresh work in our lives together. Let's look at the text of Scripture with that in view. Beginning in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2, this is God's Word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we would ask you now through your spirit to so flood our minds and our hearts with this text and the truth of this text. Presenting Christ before our minds in such a beautiful and compelling portrait that we find ourselves inescapably drawn to living lives that are patterned after Christ's example. Father, that prayer and that petition that I offer before you now as we consider this word is is one that I know can only be brought about if your Holy Spirit does a mighty work in us. And so, Lord, I would boldly ask you to do that work now, for there are people all around us in great need, and there are opportunities to reveal with lip and with life who the Lord Jesus Christ is and why he is wholly worthy of our complete and total trust. Lord, would you hear this prayer and in a way that I wouldn't even know how to pray, would you answer it through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit as he applies these truths to our heart and our lives together. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, and maybe some of you, if you didn't catch my opening comments uh, this morning when we started the service, are wondering. Now, I was here last week, and I think he preached from this text. Is he double dipping? Is that what he's doing uh, this morning? I'm, I'm not double dipping, though I'm not above double dipping at times. Um, that's not what I'm doing. Originally had planned to look at this text actually twice. Had, had not planned to look at this text in the wake of a natural disaster in our area. Had not planned to look at this text in the news of a spreading coronavirus to our county. Um, and had not thought that I would be preaching this text on a morning where you would be sleepier than normal. Um, so I asked the Lord to give us energy, uh, even in the midst of um, considering this word in light of all of those things. But had hoped in looking at this text that we would, having looked at its theology and its, its overarching call last week together, and if you weren't with us, I just point you to the website, love for you to take a, take a listen to the sermon from last week, it'll build on some of those foundations but having looked at, at the text in whole from verses 1 to 11 last week and examined it generally to, to dig in a bit to verses 5 through 11, capturing a little more of what, it, what this text is actually revealing to us about who Christ is and what he, what he has done, and then just take time applying it. What, what would it mean for us to actually take in this truth and then pattern our lives by this truth. And I'm really going to emphasize that last part. Take in this truth and pattern our lives by it. That's where we're going to focus most of our, our attention today. Now to do that, I actually have uh, just different than sometimes I normally do. I want to unpack the text fairly quickly. And I want to do that under three fairly quick headings. And then I want to sit in a fourth, and, and we'll finish up our time in this, in this fourth heading. So I want to give you all of that from the beginning, so you can kind of see the breakdown, and then walk through it uh, with you, a little more teachery, uh, maybe, maybe than normal. The, the, the four points that I really want us to take in together today, the first one is this. I want us to notice what Jesus didn't count worthy in this text. What Jesus didn't count worthy. That's point, point one. And then I want us to notice, secondly, what Jesus did count worthy in this text. What Jesus did count worthy. And then thirdly, who God the Father counted worthy in this text. Those three being the main body of what we'll talk about for just a few minutes, actually. And then the final point being, what does all of that mean for those of us who want to follow Jesus? What does all of that mean? What, what's its significance for those of us in here who, who really want to follow Jesus? What did Jesus not count worthy? What did Jesus count worthy? Who did the Father count worthy? What does all that mean 
for those of us who want to follow Jesus. Now, why am I using the language count worthy? Like, where, where does that come from in, in the text? Well, if you'll notice verses 6 and 7, Paul uh, speaks in this way. He says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's where I'm pulling that language. Did not count. We, we might, if I could rephrase it just to, to get the impact of what Paul is saying there. He's saying, Jesus did not count his station and status as one who occupies the lofty position of equality with God. He did not count his station and status as something he should seize and clutch onto, no matter what. But instead, he emptied all of who he was into the form of a servant. Now, notice how I said that. He emptied all of who he was into the form of a servant. I say it that way because I don't want you to misunderstand Paul. It would be very easy, wouldn't it, to, to read a text like this and say, Oh, wow, I didn't see this. Jesus, who was equal with God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And so when he became a man, Paul is trying to tell us that aspects of his divinity, of being God, he dumped out, <laughs> or part of his divinity he left behind, or the whole of his divinity he left behind to become a man. I, I didn't realize that that had happened. I get what Paul is saying. No, that's not what Paul is saying. If you're reading the text that way, you're misunderstanding the text. Paul is not saying that Jesus, who is the Son of God, divine, was de-godded or ungodded in some way by becoming a man. That's, that's not what he's saying at all. Notice how the text tells you this. Look with me at verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. N notice the focus. When you hear the language emptied himself, you tend to read that or think, what did he empty himself of? And you look back and you said, oh, he's not grasping onto equality with God, so he must have emptied himself of, of God, of divinity. That would be an understanding that, that you could see how someone could get there. But notice that's not what the text says. It didn't say, but he emptied himself of it says he emptied himself by. The question of the text is not whether Jesus divested himself of anything or the Son of God divested himself of anything in becoming a man. It's more about him being emptied into something else. That's the focus of the text. Not what he is being emptied of, but what he's being emptied into. That's the focus of the text. Because that pronoun or that preposition, excuse me, of by is telling us there's a movement from one form to another. But it's not communicating that there's less of God. It's telling us the very frame and priority of Jesus' mind is one who doesn't seize upon or snatch upon 
the privileges and prerogatives of his superior station and status as the Son of God. But as he looked out and he took inventory of the desperate condition of all of his people. And as he considered the fact that there was no way to save the people whom he had set his love on and whom he and the Father from all eternity had promised to save, he then looked at what it was going to cost and he realized it's going to cost me the privileges and the prerogatives of the of the status that I have enjoyed as equality with God, I'm going to actually have to release my grasp on all the comforts and privileges I enjoy from this station in life. And I'm going to have to pour all of me into a posture and form of servanthood in order to rescue and love my people and make them my own. That's what Paul is saying in the text. That's how he's communicating to us in the text. It's how you make decisions a lot of times. How we make decisions. We have a, we have a decision before us and we have a, a pros and a cons list on a sheet of paper. And we say, you know, here's a, here's a list of all the benefits and the blessings that can come from making this decision. And then we go, and here's all the risks and here's all the liabilities of making this decision. And Paul is sort of setting that kind of logic before us that as, as the Father and, and Jesus working together on the redemption of God's people, he said, the benefits and the blessings are we will save the people of God for God that he will forever be in fellowship and in union with us in the new heavens and the new earth. He will redeem us. That's the blessing. That's the mission. That's the hope. And it's going to cost me all the comforts of my station and my privilege that I've enjoyed in equality with God from all eternity. And God said as he looked at the cost compared to the benefit, he didn't count the cost. It wasn't worthy of him to grasp at. He was more than willing to be emptied into the form of the servant. That's what Paul is telling us. Now, if you can see, he didn't count his station and his privilege and his status as worthy to be clutched at or seized upon. He was willing to take all of who he was and pour it in to being a servant to us. So what did he count worthy? Saving you. That's what he counted worthy. It was more important to him to save you than it was for him to enjoy the privileges and the status and the station of being equal with God and all of the blessings of that fellowship. Saving you is what he counted worthy. He had, his, he had his people on his mind. That's where his heart was. And when the father saw that, therefore he exalted him. That's what he says. The father says, that is worthy. My son is worthy. That's what this passage is saying. My son will get the name above every name. My son will have every knee bow to him on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that he is Lord. The father says, that is worthy. All right, that's what this text is teaching us. I just kind of preached it kind of briefly to you. 
right? That's the, that's the text. You should recognize as if you were with us last week. You go, yeah, I remember some of those notes. Wasn't framed quite like that last week. But he didn't count holding on to his station and his privileges and comforts and his fellowship as worthy. He counted saving you as worthy. And the father said, that's worthy, my son who did that, all right? What does all that mean for us? Okay, we're, we're actually at point four. You're like, this is unbelievable. Like, he's almost done. <laughs> like, this is unbelievable. You're like, am I in an alternate universe right now? Tornadoes, coronavirus, shorter sermons. This is, this is unbelievable. Actually, in, in this last point, the, the, the purpose of this last point is to simply recognize that this has life-altering implications for us. Because what Paul is calling us to here is not some merely reflective, um, momentary inspiration over who Christ is and what he's done. Now, he's not against that, but the momentary and the fleeting inspiration is not the point or the focus of Paul here to go, wow, that's really nice. That's not what Paul is after. He says in verse 5, what does he want? Have this mind. Now, the mind of Jesus does this. He counts these things not worthy to be grasped. That's what Jesus' mind did. And he counts this as worthy. And the Father echoes what Jesus did as worthy. That's his mind. He says, that's the mind I want you to have. That's what he's saying in the text. That language of count is that he has judged. He has discerned and determined. He has decided this is of supreme value. That word count is a valuation. He has made a judgment call about what's important. That's what Jesus has done. And the Father has said Jesus made the right judgment. And then Paul says, you need to be making those judgments too. This is the kind of valuation I'd love for all of you, God's people, to make. How does that happen? How does that happen? I want to take a few minutes to just unpack three applications with you. Three applications in the remaining uh, portion of, of our time together. And I want to take the first two and then give an application to just work through what it would be like to inhabit the mind of Christ in our own time in which we find ourselves, even in the situations that we find ourselves. So here's application number one. If we are to have this mind of Christ, the first thing that we're going to have to do is to resist the urge to hold on to our comforts and privileges of the stations in life that we find ourselves. We have to resist the urge to grasp for them. If we're going to have this mind, we're going to have to do that. We're going to resist the urge to grasp for the comforts, the privileges, the blessings, the prerogatives that we enjoy in our life through the stations that the Lord has us in 
especially in light of the need of others. Because why, why did Jesus consider his station of equality with God not something to be grasped? It wasn't because he didn't value God, his Father, or the fellowship he enjoyed with the Spirit. It was that he had focused together with the Father and the Spirit on another value. Something of supreme value that they together were collectively focused on as the priority of their heart and their life together as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's not saying it wasn't of value. Just as we would not say the stations in life that the Lord has placed us, the privileges and blessings that he's given to us. It's not as if they're no value. He's just saying in comparison to the value of redeeming and serving others, these things can't be held on to. If those things are being held on to in such a way that it's keeping you from meeting the needs of others, you do not have the mind of Christ. Because the mind of Christ released those things and poured the reality of himself into service for others. That's what the mind of Christ counted as worthy. That's what we want to count as, as worthy. We want the mind of Christ. That's application number one. Does that make sense? Application number two, side by side. If we are to have this mind, which is the mind of Christ, we must seek ways to awaken and sustain our affection and commitment to God and others in need. We've got to seek ways to stir up, to awaken, and sustain. Notice I use two words because it's one thing to get momentarily awakened and it's another thing to sustain your alive. To awaken and sustain your affection and commitment to God and to the need of others. Now to me, those applications seem like they sit on the top of the instruction, have this mind. Have this mind. This is the mind I'm showing you. Have this mind. So we're going to need to resist the urge to hold on to our certain stations in life and all the privileges and prerogatives that go along with it. We're not going to grasp those to such a degree that keeps us from serving others. And we're going to stir up our hearts and awaken them for a, in a sustaining way for service to God and in care for the need of others. Now, if that makes sense, and it, I hope it does, and I, and I hope it seems consistent to what it is the Apostle Paul is teaching you and just simply teasing out what he's communicating. Let's, let's be a prospective volunteer for tornado disaster relief. Let, let's, be, let's be that for just a minute because this is a very real circumstance and situation in which we find ourselves in, in life currently in, in our community. You hear of the news of a tornado that has happened in North Nashville and 
You wake up Tuesday morning and we're still learning about the devastation, the significance of it, and you turn on the television or you go online and you're getting some grainy, um, shadowy, dawn-like photos, but it's pretty clear it's going to be a very significant storm. You immediately want to make sure the people that you know and love in the area are okay, and you phone them and you hear that they're okay. You're incredibly relieved, and you think to yourself, this is going to be a long Hall, there's going to be lots of work that you're going to need to do. We need to help. I need to help. I want to help. I want to help and I want to serve. So I'm going to go look at my calendar and I'm going to go look at my bank account and I'm going to go look at my, my, my plans, my to-do list, and I'm going to say, where can I fit in tornado disaster relief in these areas that are a part of my privileges and stations in life? And I go, what time off do I have? That's how I think first. Saturday. But I'm going to work a long day on Friday. And I'd like to sleep in just a little bit. I wouldn't want to go to a team too early. Uh, then there's that play we were hoping to get to and that, that ball game and next weekend, maybe next weekend will be better because the next week's always going to be easier. Yeah, right. And I, I look to my, my budget and I, and I look to my to-dos and I just go to myself, it's, it's too busy. Maybe other people who have more money and have more time, really they have more responsibility than I do anyway to help in circumstances like this. That's application number one, isn't it? The urge to both help and then immediately go, that's going to cost a lot. I'm going to have to sacrifice things I care about. Things that go along with my status and station, even good things. There's nothing wrong with even the things that I mentioned. There certainly wasn't anything wrong with the equality with God that Jesus himself enjoyed in his station in life. That's sort of application in real time. Kind of what it, what it might feel like for, for some of you in the room. A couple days go by, and you learn that your, your neighbor, using the, I'll use the Sheridans for an example, that your neighbor right to your left has a sister who lost everything in the storm. And you, you go over and you see like real flesh people with like real stitches in their head. And you see the devastation that's happened and all of a sudden you go, those aren't just pictures online. Like this is like really happening. All of a sudden you're re-aroused, reawakened, and you go, We've got to do something. Now, now all of a sudden, I can't bed down any of my urging and resistance any longer. It's become more convincing to me, more compelling to me, that it's before my very face and there's a tangible way for me to do it. I've been called in some way, shape, or form to contribute to the meeting of the needs. And if I need to cancel things, and if I need to not do things in order to meet this need, so help me God, I need to be a part of the answer of the need of the hour. Now, what, what happened in that? 
What happened to kind of reinvigorate that? You know, you know, you're pushing that aside and you go, oh, maybe next week. And then all of a sudden it got front and center again. It became, it became really important. What, what happened? Truth. Reality. Need. Came front and center to your heart. And you could not say no to this particular opportunity to serve. It captured you. Application number two. How does one stir up or awaken the recognition that in love and service to God and in others, we might have to leave behind the privileges and stations of our own lives in order to care for the needs of others who are around us. You can see that that can happen with an inspiring story. It can happen through a personal encounter. It can happen through a a, a winsome form of communication. There are lots of variety of ways for that to happen. But at some point, there's what we might call a tipping point. A place where you know you're now moving away from resisting everything that seemed so important a few minutes ago to like, I have to go do this. I have to go do this. And, and it's becoming for you, as it were, a call. In that moment, what did you do? You counted this thing more worthy of your time and energy and resources and whatever it's calling you to than the things a minute ago that you were grasping for. You moved in your valuation because something, you saw something, you experienced something, something registered to you. Now, this is actually how we make hard decisions all the time in life. So this is not unique to volunteering or anything like this. I was at a party recently and I was cutting a piece of cake for myself. And right beside me was this young lady who I... As I was cutting my cake, you know, she's standing there and I go, would you like a piece of cake? Two. She said, no. No, she's going to be very good. She's going to be a lot better than me. Not going to eat the cake. Cut, cut the cake. And then she gave me this incredible line. It's, an, it's, a, it's a wonderful line. I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking I need to believe this. She, she said, well, I was told recently that cake or whatever the thing would be, Cake doesn't taste as good as skinny feels. I don't believe that, but might need to ponder that a little more. But that was her line. Cake doesn't taste as good as skinny feels. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. That'll motivate. You know, that'll motivate. That'll work. What is she saying? I have counted skinniness with a higher valuation than my momentary desire to enjoy the sweetness of that chocolate cake. That's what she was saying. Same quality of reasoning that we're talking about in our, in our text. Valuation. Priority. What are the things that are going to win in your schedule? Going to win with your money. 
they're going to win with your time? What are the values that are leading your life? Paul says Jesus did not consider equality with God. Now, friends, if you could just pause for a second and ask yourself, how valuable is equality with God and all its privileges and prerogatives and benefits and blessings? There is no way to estimate that value. It is so high. And when he set his love upon you, the estimation of that value was released to seize upon you in love. That's what he's saying. That's unfathomable. That makes no sense whatsoever. The only way to make sense of Jesus' decision, of God the Father's decision, the Holy Spirit's union with their mission to redeem for themselves a people, the only way that makes sense, you know how? Love. Love. You know, the most powerful moments in the Scripture is when Israel, he's explaining to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were awesome. I didn't choose you because you were the greatest. Like I did a personality profile on nations and sociology tests, and I just realized you were going to come out great. He didn't know that. He says, I love you because I love you. I love you because I love you. And I'm willing to go through hell to make you mine. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying in this text. That's what he's saying in this text. This is what we mean in this last and final application as we close. If we're going to have this mind of Christ, Christ has got to become the principle and the pattern for our lives. Christ has got to become the principle and the pattern of our life. What do I mean by principle? He has got to be what Paul has already said in the letter of Philippians. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. He is the principle of my life. He is the principle of my life. All of my life is bound up in him. Everything I know to describe life by comes under the rubric of Jesus Christ. That is life for me. He is the principle of my life. And because he's the principle of my life, his life becomes for me the pattern by which I live. He becomes to me, through the principle of his life, the pattern of my very life. Do you see, the way that that happens is, I think, by embracing these, these two realities. Who you are in Christ and what it is he's called you to. 
Do you know who you are right now in Christ? Just as a reminder, this is your position in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have embraced him alone as he has offered to you in the gospel, you are a child of God, utterly beloved and accepted in Christ before your heavenly father. And there is nothing that can change that status, that position. There's nothing that can change it. That's who you are. And the only reason you occupy that status is because of everything that Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Taking the penalty of your sin upon himself, giving to you and crediting to you his righteousness, that you would become the beloved and accepted before the Heavenly Father. That's your position. But you know what also we are? In light of that position of what he has given to us, we are now the servants of God joyously as Christ came in submission to his Father to love God and others with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's our calling. Christ is the principle. Christ is the pattern. Now that means, I think, a bunch of different things. We could talk through a a number of applications as regards that, but one of the reasons I... I had read today in service, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, is the Apostle Paul is giving you a picture of part of what it means to live out the mind of Christ. Because if you look at Philippians chapter 2, what did the mind of Christ do? What was he willing to do? He was willing to be made like you to save you. What does Paul say? I'm willing to be all things to all people. In order that I might save some. You know what that might mean for you? It might mean that in your relationships with people, you might not just evaluate them by, I like them, I don't like them. Do they like the things that I like? Do they not like the things that I like? Do they, do they vote for the right candidate? Do they cheer for the right team? Do they make similar life choices? But actually, you would become like them in that. You would be asking questions concerning what their needs and interests are and meeting them in the midst of what they care about rather than what you care about. And the foundational categories for how you relate to them wouldn't be whether you came from the same geography and had the same accent, but it would be things like they're made in the image of God. They're a sinner in need of grace. They have their own struggles, silent, behind closed doors, and they need God to change them. They're looking for hope. They're battling with broken hearts. They're continuing to struggle, and they need someone that's going to help them. And I need someone who's going to help me. That being all things to all people is recognizing what's universal among us and living according to those truths and then being willing in being made like them To give our lives away to them. Because that's what Jesus did, didn't he? He gave his life away to us. And fully laid himself bare. And and what what struck me in his laying himself bare and his caring for us is notice he loved us in the way that we needed to be loved. He, he He didn't say... You know, I see that they need a substitutionary atonement to be saved. I'd really just rather speak words of affection to them. That's how I'd prefer to love them. I'd prefer to love them through like sending them a gift from afar, giving them a nice harvest. 
after a strong, after a hard winter. No, he didn't. He didn't say, I'll love them the way I feel like loving them or would like to love them or the, the path of least resistance. I will love them in the way that will save them. I will pay the ultimate degree of cost in order to give to them the thing that they most need. The nature of his love and commitment is not superficial nor self-oriented. It's completely focused upon the need of others. Friends, when we begin to realize that this is the love of Christ that we have actually received, basically here's the sum total as we close. The sum total is this. We have been called to love one another and to love others with the love that we have been loved with in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we're called to do. What does that mean for you now? Personally, for your family, for your relationships, for our church, what, what does that mean for us? How do, how do we live? Do we simply say, for instance, do we simply in response to coronavirus fear, wash our hands for three hours a day and hold ourselves away in an apartment? Or do, are we the kind of people who actually say, I become the nurse that goes into the center of the disease to care for those in need? Are we the kind of people who have become so identified with the Lord Jesus Christ that the things that do threaten us, we recognize the portal of death is just that, a means by which we get more of Christ and are glorified, and thus we walk by the drumbeat, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? We will be wise, we will be considerate, but we will in no way let fear keep us in the way of meeting others' needs. Are we strong there? Is that a muscle spiritually we're using? We have an opportunity in a variety of ways to flex that muscle by God's grace and His Spirit. To begin to grow in ways that maybe we've not grown before. How is the Lord calling you and me in that path? Friends, as we ask that question as a community in the days to come. Let's ask the Lord to answer that question unmistakably. With the change that He brings in our lives. Let's pray to that end right now. Father in heaven, it would be my prayer, and I pray in keeping with your spirit and with the desire and design of your word, that the manifest evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit working through Philippians 2, 5 through 11 would be for this local congregation and for all Bible-believing Christians in and around us to demonstrably reveal our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the needs of others in making Him known, caring in physical and spiritual ways for all of those whom You have put in our path and influence, that You would make it so demonstrably known that You are in our midst, that there would be no way to categorize the outpouring, the love, the sacrifice, and the joy that accompanies it except for the fact that God is among his people. The same God who, as it were, climbed down from the station of equality with God and did not grasp upon its privileges and prerogatives, 
but poured the entirety of himself, his power and his strength towards the good of those who are utterly hopeless without him and continues today, even in the midst of this prayer, to lovingly care and intercede for his people and bring all of human history to the place at which Jesus and his complete victory will be known when every knee does bow and every tongue does confess that he is Lord. Oh, Father, we pray that a breaking in of that reality, a rending of the heavens and even the rending of our hearts, would be your objective and answer to the way in which you are revealing yourself in our own days and time. Father, speak to us until we hear. Move within us until we change. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.